My name is Heather Pittman, and I will be reading scripture this morning. Today's reading is from the Old Testament, the book of Exodus, chapter 20, beginning at verse 1. Listen for the word of God. Then God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol, whether in the form of anything that is in heaven above, or that is on the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing children for the iniquity of parents to the third and the fourth generation of those who reject me, but showing steadfast love to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not make wrongful use of the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not acquit anyone who misuses his name. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Let us pray. Lord, you are holy. You are whole. You are always evermore than we could ever dream or ever imagine. And yet, you come to us. You come to us in your beloved creation. And you come to us in your word. We pray that through these human words, these limited words, your living word might be heard and we might come to praise your name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So what was the first commandment? <laughs> you shall have no other gods before me. What's the second commandment? No idols, I hear whispering. You got it, you got it. All these people back here, I can hear them. Maybe I just can't, maybe the acoustics are carrying their, their voices. I think that that's probably it. So no idols. What is this commandment? Could you read it out? You shall... You shall not take the Lord's name in vain. That is the third commandment. And I've put it up on the screen using the King James Version of the Bible. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. The more modern translation we heard aloud was, you shall not make wrongful use of the Lord, of the name of the Lord your God. But that didn't fit so well on the PowerPoint. So I actually went with the King James Version because it's nice and concise. But it's not just a good translation for being concise, though, because the word vain, as in in vain, is rooted in the word vanity. To do something for the sake of vanity can mean to do something uselessly or without point, like, gosh, rebuilding that Porsche is just his vanity project, right? Good use of the word vanity. No offense to anybody with a Porsche out there. Or it can mean to do something for your own ego. 
you may have heard the song that goes, you're so vain, you probably think this song's about you, right? To do something in vain is to do it uselessly without purpose on one hand or to do it for your own glorification on the other. And so it is with God's name. I mean, some of us grew up in a time where this commandment was more or less how we use our words, usually words associated with God and holy things. If you're from Quebec, you will know that all the swear words are church words, right? Whereas most English words, English-speaking Canadians are more likely to invoke the name of Jesus Christ after seeing something terrible on the side of the road or bashing their thumb in with a hammer rather than in earnest prayer. And this is the type of vein that we would put in the category of useless or unnecessary deployment of God's name. Now, speaking as someone who can be somewhat irreverent about faith-related things on occasion, it is a helpful reminder for me to watch what I say, that I'm not just going for a joke, but I'm trying to glorify God with my language, because when we use words carelessly, these words carelessly, it can make them more ordinary, more commonplace, the furniture. It empties these words of their holiness that they're ultimately intended to convey. It's not the worst thing we can do with God's name, but it's also not good either. Misuse can erode their meaningfulness and their power. It's not the worst thing we can do with God's name, though. A worse thing actually has to do with the other meaning of that word, vanity. Not to just use the name of God irreverently or uselessly, but to use it for the sake of our own ego or aggrandizement, to recruit God's name for our purposes rather than God's, for our glory. From a personal vantage point, this can be a particular temptation as a parent. Parenting can be really hard. <laughs> I don't know if any of you know this. And children can be really frustrating. Sometimes we don't know what to do about it. So we might bring God in as the big gun for behavioral management in the hopes that it will, as people used to say, put the fear of God into them. My disappointment with them isn't getting through to them, so maybe divine disappointment will. I don't know if you've ever done that before. Often, though, this can kind of blow up in our faces down the road. This can push children further away from us, but also probably worse, it can push them away from God and faith altogether. This is a vain use of God's name because it puts into question the very character of the Creator. Your limitations become God's limitations. Or from a more social standpoint, there's been a real temptation, especially in most recent years, for God to be recruited in support of a particular political party, political issue, or Agenda. Now, of course, God should have everything to do with how Christians think about politics and how we 
organize ourselves as a society and our world for the sake of the common good. Jesus is a friend of the poor, of sinners, outcast, and the oppressed. It's quite clear in the Bible that human flourishing is God's business, and that includes politics. But it's one thing to have our faith inform our politics. It's another to believe that God is on our side. It's one thing to believe that God is on our side. Last week, I quoted the writer Anne Lamott, who said that your God is probably an idol if he hates everyone that you do. It's not all... Yes. Your God's probably also an idol if your God loves only the people you love as well. It's not only idolatry, convening the second, contravening the second commandment, it's also breaking the third. It's vanity because we're using God as a hammer, as a way to meet our own political aims and the justification for our own objectives. God's name is just another banner. Jesus just another mascot in our parade. The problem with this is that we Christians, those of us who are Christians, carry God's name. God's name is stamped on us. We are God's representatives. I can't tell you how many times people of all ages who have told me that faith isn't an option for them on account of something some Christian said or did to them as a or did, or did to them, or a loved one, or something some Christian said in the news. I know that I've pushed people away with my own irritation and judgmentalism on more than one occasion. There's this quote by an Indian philosopher from the early part of the last century, often attributed to Gandhi. I would have just said Gandhi said it, but I looked it up and Gandhi didn't say it, so... Your Jesus is ideal and wonderful, he says. Your Jesus is wonderful, but you Christians are not like him. I mean, that's true about me. The biggest obstacle to Christianity within our own context is not just secularization, a lack of willingness towards belief. It's associating God with our zealotry, our hypocrisy, and our occasional meanness, and even our indifference towards other people's suffering. It's the tarnishing of God's good name by the vanity of God's people. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm tempted to tell people about how I'm not that kind of Christian, or to say that not all Christians are like that. We swear there are good Christians out there, too, and how I'm sick and tired of all the ones profaning God's name, which is true. It's all true. I wonder, though, if that's really enough to claim that we are not profaning God's name. You might remember last week when I said that every negative commandment has a positive obligation. Like it's one thing to simply not cheat on your spouse, it's another thing to love and care for your spouse with everything you've got. That's the positive. There's always a positive 
inversion of a negative commandment. Well, the positive in the case of this commandment, the opposite of not using God's name in the wrong way or in vain is to use God's name in the right way. Martin Luther, that great 16th century reformer, said that this commandment bids not to, quote, use God's name superstitiously or use it to curse, swear, lie, or deceive, but to instead, and here's the positive, call on God's name in prayer, praise, and thanksgiving. The proper use of God's name is to call on God's name in prayer, praise, and thanksgiving. The last two are crucial because the opposite of vanity is humility. To invoke God's name in thanksgiving is to offer gratitude for what we have and what God has done. And to invoke God's name in praise is to really give God the credit for how good God is doing it. Jesus said the same when he said, let your light shine for all the world to see that they may give glory to your Father in heaven. It's not enough to not say God's name in vain. If we want to use God's name rightly, it's to give God glory for the good in our lives and the good that we do. You know, we, we call this in the United Church, we might call this the E word. Anybody know what the E word is? Evangelism. <sighs> the United Church person in me just shivered and died. <laughs> but to speak well of God in the world. I recently read a biography of Abraham Lincoln, president of the United States during the American Civil War. I think we all have some sense of who Lincoln was. Some of you may have already known that Lincoln had quite a faith life. Lincoln wasn't a saint by any stretch, but one of his virtues was that he kind of knew it. He understood it. In the heat of the Civil War, one of his advisors said that he was grateful God was on Lincoln's side, the side of the North against the South. But Lincoln didn't really have this at all. He's, sir, he said, sir, my concern is not whether God is on our side. My greatest concern is to be on God's side. For God is always right. Lincoln never had a, an airtight sense of his own rightness, but a sense of deep humility in spite of the righteousness of the cause of freedom of enslaved people. Lincoln was always skeptical of his own righteousness. To do otherwise would be taking the name, Lord's name in vain. But he also exhibited that positive understanding of the commandment too. This is more Lincoln. All the Lincoln you could possibly want on Sunday morning. When his Union forces captured Richmond, the capital of the slave-holding Confederacy, basically the war was over and they'd won, Lincoln, along with other government dignitaries, the city by steamship, and as they disembarked, newly freed slaves started running up to him, and one freedman shouted that this was Lincoln, the man to whom they owed their freedom. This is the guy who freed us. But rather than responding with something like, you're welcome, or gosh, it was, it was nothing, Lincoln demurred. Don't thank me for your freedom, Lincoln replied. 
don't thank me. You can thank Almighty God. Don't thank me. You can thank Almighty God. This was Lincoln's victory, his greatest triumph, but instead he turned to invoking the name of the Lord in thanksgiving and praise for the gift of freedom, something that he knew that he did not bestow, but it was God. He pointed to God and away from himself. Don't thank me, he said. Thank Almighty God. Now, you and I may not be Abraham Lincoln, not even by a long shot, but I'm reminded of the, great wor- the words of the great monk and mystic Thomas Merton. Merton once said that saints are not people who are good, but people who have known God's goodness. Saints are not people who are good, but people who have known God's goodness. You don't have to be a Lincoln or even a Thomas Merton to know God's goodness. Nor do you need to be a recognized saint to keep this commandment. You just have to have known God's goodness in your own life and be willing to step to one side, point to it and say, God, right there. Or, don't thank me, thank Almighty God. Not to use God for our purposes, but willing to be used for God and to the glory of God's name. Not to use God for our purposes, but be willing to be used by God for the glory of God's name. Anybody can keep this commandment. So where have you been blessed? Where have you blessed others? Where have you experienced grace, healing, and peace? With all of that in mind, how can you, by grace, bring God's glory, bring honor to God's name in your words? and your deeds. Or, in the words of Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, you are the light of the world, a city built on a hill hidden. No one after lighting a lamp puts it under a bushel basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. May you bring God glory in your deeds and in your words. And may this same good-named and glorious God have mercy on us and incline our hearts to keep this law. Amen.
please stand for our hymn of the day? Will you come and follow me? Thank you. 